And welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Mr. Matt Agarist. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Newman. Dr. Newman is an economic historian and an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College and at the Mises Institute. He completed his PhD in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He recently had his new book, Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, reached number one on Amazon political history charts. So welcome to the show, Dr. Newman. Uh, we recently listened to you on Tom Woods, the Bob Murphy show, promoting your very successful book, which was recently published called Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in the Early America which was number one on Amazon in the political history section, which is awesome. And uh, you also had the the great Rob Schneider uh, tweet out a picture of himself reading the book, uh, which is obviously a great endorsement, Deuce Bigelow himself. But as Jeff Dice would say, focusing on economic political history is a bit of a lost art. So could you tell us what motivated you to write the book and um, to focus on maybe more of the historical aspect of cronyism? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I, I wrote the book in the hopes that Rob Schneider would tweet about it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, I wrote the book uh, in 2018 and 2019. I was working on really translating or deciphering Rothbard's unpublished fifth volume conceived of, of Conceived in Liberty on the U.S. Constitution. And that's a, a whole story in itself. Uh, but in late 2018, Hunter Lewis, so he's a, a donor related to the Mises Institute, he approached me and asked me if I, was, if I would be interested in writing a book on the history of crony capitalism in the United States. So this is a huge project, uh, but it was something that I was very excited to work on. So I started working on it in the spring of 2019, and the book basically got done around last year of this time. So it took about a year and a half to write. And I wanted to focus on early America initially, just because I want to write actually multiple books just to sort of cover all the detail. So I wanted to focus on early America, particularly when I thought the opponents of cronyism had the best shot at reducing cronyism. Uh, you had major political parties that might be considered libertarian, and they not only ran for office, but they also uh, succeeded in winning and actually striking down at some special privileges. So I wanted to focus on that. And basically, this was a, a very intensive project. I had to do a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of writing, uh, you know, edits, cutting down the book, et cetera, but I thoroughly enjoyed it and it was, it was, it was thoroughly worth it. And I'm, I'm just, I'm very happy to be on the podcast talking about it now. The book focuses on the years of 1607 to 1849. Can you explain how you found some of that information and the historical documents for those years? Like I have a hard enough time finding a post I made a month ago. And <laughs> I, I think most people feel like a lot of the information online is misinformation or inaccurate, especially if it dates back in history in any significant way. So like, where were your sources? Um, how do you know they're accurate? And uh, especially when like the, the winners of history are oftentimes the people who write it. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a great question. So on this period of America, so from 1607, the, the founding of Jamestown, the colony in Virginia, up to 1849, which is really just uh, the, the beginning of the, uh, the Taylor, the Zachary Taylor administration after the Mexican War. Um, a lot of the, the research done on this period, and which continues to still be done, is through academic papers and through books. So I was able to find a lot of stuff on the internet, but more often than not, it was me 
ordering books on Amazon. Um, Amazon must have been wondering who is this random guy in Tampa that seems to be ordering every <laughs> history book uh, we, we, we have for sale. Um, so I, I think I might have actually caused the you know, Amazon stock to go up just from all of my purchases for this. And so it was just a lot of reading. So I was not necessarily the Internet. I mean, I was able to use the Internet as a great source, searching through books, searching through documents, et cetera. But reading a lot of older history, which I tend to find much more accurate, especially about this period. And the, the secret when it comes to writing or really doing any sort of thorough, um, you know, anything involving research or thorough research is you just simply have to read, read and read some more. So sometimes you'll see uh, incorrect facts in a history book that you have to be able to spot out from your own memory. Other times you'll see the traditional whitewashing, et cetera, that is only uh, revised in, in, in more neglected histories and so on. But it really just involved a lot of reading uh, and a lot of just painstaking research. And it, it's, it, was, it was enjoyable. I enjoy reading. Um, it's it's uh, probably the amount I had to do for this book is, is, is definitely out of the ordinary, but that was the basic approach. So it mainly was secondary sources of books that have been published uh, over the past couple decades, etc. Very few primary sources. I did look directly at some primary sources. I was able to find the whole story there. It was just spread out uh, and not really told before um, uh, through, through, through previously published research. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You had to kind of fact check yourself and, and more or less kind of go by your own uh, understanding of history. I mean, uh, obviously, fact checkers weren't around back then. And even if they were, they'd probably get it wrong like they do most of the time now. Did you dig into any uh, revisionist history? Oh, absolutely. So I primarily used revisionist history or history that presented an alternative side um, in the for a lot of the research I used and for the story I was trying to tell of works written in the 50s and 60s so much of it wasn't revisionist it was just sort of historical consensus that was slowly uh, getting overturned by the the new history uh, or new generation of historians in the 70s and 80s unfortunately but I did use a lot of revisionist history or what what might be called revisionist history uh, so when I was look, doing my research on Alexander Hamilton, for example, I did not rely on Ron Chernow's biography, which formed, um, you know, the, the, the foundation for the, the Hamilton play, which I found extremely inaccurate. So I had to look beneath the uh, at least the, the traditional public record or what you might find on Wikipedia or some other, you know, just the first couple links on Google if you type something in. So, yeah, I had to rely a lot on revisionist history. Right. I guess cronyism and American exceptionalism go hand in hand when it comes to rewriting America's role in the world, you know, with the the, the exceptionalist attitudes and have done no wrong. But, yeah, that's that's what's good about the Mises Institute is uh, and Rothbard and um, and Mises himself, both, you know, scholars of, of actual true history and not the exceptionalism. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, and and the that's a lot of people have this this misconception about America that um, you know everything was great before until recently, which I try and disprove and show that no cronyism was alive and well, and you know really all good histories in a sense revisionist because you're trying to challenge some prior information, you're trying to present some new. Uh, sources or just something that's challenging the traditional narrative. And, and in a sense, all history is in a, almost or all good history is almost conspiratorial because you're trying to analyze what were the actual motivations behind legislation? Who are the people who actually benefited? Uh, that's the interesting history. That's the history that really is more illuminating. And that's the history, most importantly, that we can learn from uh, and apply in, you know, the, in 2022 and beyond. It kind of makes you wonder how much is going to be changed uh, in the future during, you know, our lifespan here and all the information and narratives that we've uh, endured throughout our years. I think you had mentioned in a speech at the Mises Institute that some areas in cronyism actually decreased, which seems kind of counterintuitive. You would assume that power continues to consolidate. It'd be kind of a linear process, like a snowball effect in a way. What have you determined to be like the crucial factors in those periods with the decline of special interests? Yeah, so the, the big thing, is, the, the, the big reason as to why it was at least a little bit different back then 
was because as the sort of the subtitle for my book, Liberty versus Power, I used this theory that many Americans actually during this time had argued, many historians in the 1950s and 60s, uh, including Murray Rothbard, had uh, recognized um, that there, there was this battle between people who considered themselves, to use the modern term, libertarian, who are against cronyism, they're against central banking, they were against protective tariffs, they're against internal improvements and increasing the public debt, they were in favor of homesteading, they were in favor of states' rights, uh, a non-interventionist foreign policy, etc., against uh, the forces of power or cronyism, which basically favored all of the opposite policies, central banking, protective tariffs, uh, so on and so forth. And you think about the who, who exactly were these forces of liberty, so to speak. Well, really, they were the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Jacksonian Democrats. So you actually did have a significant mass movement, not only among uh, some elites, but also among you know many segments of the average population who did fight against cronyism and they did support a small government, which is why in certain years, especially during the Jacksonian years, at least for a, a period of time, you were able to see a decrease in special privileges because there was just simply enough political power to uh, get you know certain you know to dismantle uh, the crony legislation you know nowadays or at least 10 years ago when i got into all this back in you know 2008 you know we all supported i supported ron paul but most people thought that you know he had no shot or even if he did somehow win miraculously win the presidency he wouldn't be able to do much just given the lack of support in the bureaucracies and in, in, in Congress, et cetera. It wasn't always like that. You just simply saw more Americans back in the day have a stronger belief in decentralization, in free markets, and uh, they were suspicious of government intervention. So that's really why you saw such a, uh, in certain periods, a decrease in cronyism uh, and not just sort of uh, preventing it from rising, so to speak. It was, just comes down to the fact that more Americans were libertarian back then. Interesting. I wonder how much that has to do with public schooling uh, throughout the, the centuries and, you know, obviously the onslaught of uh, more status types of uh, ideals and, and norms. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the public school movement, which I, I think there's no coincidence because that's that's a that's a great point you bring up. Um, New England is, is one of my least favorite regions, uh, at least during this period, because many of them were New England was federalists or. Uh, or Whigs, et cetera, generally kind of these forces of power. And in New England, you also saw that was where the public school movements really started and, and got off the ground. So there, there, there might be something there because the, the public school teachers uh, back then thought they had to teach the benefits of the government and sort of show why everything was necessary, sort of consolidate the nation and, and, and so on. So I definitely think there's a connection there. But a big reason related to that is the university system was very different back then. It was small liberal arts colleges. Uh, there was little government involvement. Um, most professors were not paid researchers by the government. They were teachers. And they most uh, people who taught economics or political economy back then generally used the free market writings of the era. So Adam Smith was very big. Jefferson thought, he was the best economist, or he written the best book, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, John Baptiste Say uh, was very uh, influential. Frederick Bastiat, very influential for the Jacksonians. So you did see this burst of free market thought that was able to filter through the education system, at least through many universities, as well as through popular writings. Um, during the Revolutionary War era, no one really read John Locke's two treatises of government, these, these massive books. People read Cato's letters, which are these short pamphlets, basically condensing the information of John Locke uh, to the average to the average person, so to speak. So the 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 intellectual environment uh, is very is very important, and one of the reasons why you saw such a huge increase in government power later on was because the intellectuals started to side with the government. Yeah. So essentially, like, is it is this what you found? Is it like you know the the cronyism was there the entire time from the 1600s and onward, and there was a I guess like a a brief bout against it with during uh, the Jacksonian era and the Jeffersonian era, but like I guess like as you said, the Federalists, you know, the, these people were pushing this cronyist approach or cronyism approach from from since before the founding of the of the United States, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So you saw is when the Federalists or the the, the Hamiltonians, uh, the Whigs, etc., they were in power. Cronyism increased, obviously, because that's what they want. And when the Jeffersonians or the Jacksonians were in power, cronyism decreased. The issue, and this is part of the liberty versus power theory that I discuss, is that cronyism only moderately decreased before it started to increase again when sort of the, the Jeffersonians or Jacksonians were in control. And this was because, the, to quote an old phrase from Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So corruption referring to increasing cronyism. What happens is that when reformers take control of office, uh, they feel the inexorable pressure of moderation, of trying to look ahead to the next election, appeal to new uh, you know, voters or special interest groups to expand their own uh, influence, etc. And so then they start to support their own cronyism. So it's kind of like cronyism has a built-in mechaniz- mechanism preventing its own decline. So cronyism might go up during the Federalist era. Then when the Jeffersonians take control, it goes down a bit before cronyism goes up again. And that's why you sort of get like a ratchet almost, uh, similar to Robert Higgs' Crisis in Leviathan. But this is really the, at least back then, was the reason why, although cronyism went down in certain um, periods, it, it still went up overall. Right. It's a, now it's the, it's the very system that we live under. You know, people, <clears throat> people like to refer to the, this merger of corporate and state and corruption as capitalism. But, you know, what, like in your book, which I'm sure you point out, is that it's, it's not. Cronyism can, can exist and likely will exist under all forms of, of the state. So even if there was this, you know, a, a socialist country or um, a communist country that attempted to wipe that out, it would inevitably re- revert to cronyism. It's basically like a tendency of what Lord Acton says. You know, it, it power corrupts and uh, – in, in all forms, not just uh, like capitalism. Would you like? Would you speak to that, like in just a, a broader sense of, um, of of that idea, not just how it's like it's it's not this capitalistic attitude or this capitalistic um, ideology. It's it's actually the cronyism itself is the ideology. Yeah, that that's a great point, and this is actually why. I don't use the word, the phrase crony capitalism in my book. I instead just use cronyism because mm-hmm. for me, capitalism is, is the antithesis of cronyism. It's the opposite. You know, the free market uh, has no special privileges or favorable legislation, subsidies, uh, tariffs, uh, you know, bailouts, whatever, you know, whatever you, um, you know, and other various other interventions, et cetera. Uh, you know, cronyism is distinct. It can operate in multiple systems. And an additional uh, reason why I, I made that move is because also there's a lot of political cronyism. American history is, 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 is filled with examples of uh, election rigging or politicians screwing other politicians, supporting legislation just to harm their, their own political competitors and Politicians are very much involved in this. It's cronyism is is really embedded in the government and especially in a, demo, a democratic government, given all sorts of um, you know voting laws and, and and so on. And this is something a lot of people don't recognize that you know that, that politicians have been have been bri- have been bribed. They've been bribing voters. Uh, they've been in the tools of various businesses and other groups. Uh, since they're, they're looking out the profit themselves, et cetera, since the very beginning. So I, I, I intentionally uh, did not use the word capitalism, or at least in, in conjunction with crony capital, cronyism, because they're, they're separate. The, the, the capitalism is, is the opposite of cronyism. Right. I mean, the very definition of lobbying it can be <laughs> referred to as cronyism, right? When, when it becomes legal for a uh, special interest to assert their influence over the the governing power of the country, then that's, in essence, cronyism right there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in lobbying, I talk about this lobbying was, was, was from the very beginning. In fact, corporations, a lot of people don't realize this, the corporation where you have multiple owners with stock and they have limited liability, that was something that was created explicitly by lobbying because in order to get a corporation uh, in order to start a corporation in the colonial era or even in early American history, you had to apply the legislator, legis- the, 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 legis- uh, the relevant you know, federal or state 
uh, legislator for a, a, a license, a corporate charter. And you had to bribe politicians. You had to bribe politicians not to grant other corporate charters, et cetera. So even the idea of a corporation uh, somewhat was linked in, explicitly linked in with, with cronyism. So lobbying is a, is a great example of cronyism. It's really just an indirect form of bribery. Um, and most exactly. people don't like to recognize that fact. Right. Do you go into that, like in the like the start of lobbying and the of, of any of its like historical value? Oh yeah, I I, I go through that in in, in relationship with uh, various types of legislation. When I show, okay, who are the the relevant uh, legislate? You know, the, who who are the relevant uh, politicians? Who are the relevant lobbyists? What committees they would influence? Um, a, a lot of times, so in, in, in American history, at least, um, initially the politician could be its own special interest because the politician himself owned, uh, you know, a, a relevant business, right? And and really, the the independent lobbying force uh, began in the 1850s. So the actual term lobbying, at least in the the British connection, refers to the fact that special interests would wait in the halls of parliament aka the lobby so when politicians were coming in they were trying to they were trying to get their attention before they go into the actual chamber in america at least the the, the, where a lot of people say it comes from though it's been around the the term has been around before it was just made famous was in the 1870s president grant would frequently smoke cigars and drink whiskey at a hotel across from the white house and he would hang out in the lobby and various special interests would go and ply him, give him favors or his relevant administrators in return for, for special privileges. So, oh, yeah, I, I go through a lot of, of, of the lobbying in, in, involved and a big part of the history that I, I, I try and do. And this is something that has a lot of relevance to the modern era is a lot of times people just assume various politicians, they come out of nowhere, like they, they had no life before they entered office and they have no life after. Right. So I try and look at, okay, what were they doing before? Uh, Who are they friends with? Were they friends with prominent businesses? Were they businessmen? Were they did they work at a bank, et cetera? Because when you do that, you actually see sort of the lobbying trail unfolds and you, you see how the various special interests have influenced this politician. That's the actual good type of history. Right. That's the stuff we should be doing when we analyze politicians and presidential candidates but of course the establishment media does not want uh your average person or your average historian uh to do that no instead we focus on the same dozen issues that are completely irrelevant to the majority of americans you know yeah we got to keep that conversation in a limited spectrum right 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 (laughs) dumb it down and, and make it divisive and don't actually look at Who's pushing these policies? So in your estimation, has one party been more responsible for engaging in cronyism and legalizing it more than the other throughout history? Or is it just safe to say that both parties are kind of equally guilty in perverting the apparatus of government and this is just more or less like a symptom of statism? Well, I would say overall it's probably been both. It really has changed throughout history, especially because in the period that I'm looking at, you didn't see um, the the two modern parties. Um, Jefferson's, the Republican Party, technically has no direct linkage to the modern Republican Party. That party started in the 1850s. The Democratic Party under Andrew Jackson, that is the same party organization. Uh, Democrats later on when they got corrupted for power, they were responsible for a tremendous amount of cronyism, particularly in foreign policy and land expansion. Once the Republicans got control ever since Abraham Lincoln, then they dominated the cronyism really until the progressive era. Then you've had the Democrats and, and since the 20th century and really into the 21st century, it's kind of both parties are increasing cronyism. It's just partisan politics that causes people to fight um, various sorts of uh, special interest legislation. You know, Democrats will fight Republicans cronyism just simply because it helps Republicans. Republicans will fight Democrat cronyism and so on. Overall, both parties um, have been supportive of cronyism because for a long time there really hasn't been a party that is actually dedicated to small government. Republicans certainly know how to play that audience. Uh, It's often said that Republicans, I'm talking about the modern era, are always better fundraisers outside of office than in. 
So they're very good at playing the party of opposition. But once they're in control, they 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 don't really make meaningful steps to actually reduce prior cronyism. And so it's you know, it's all part of the same system. Yeah, it feels like it's just been normalized at this point. So you had mentioned that uh, Americans don't t tend to care about history or economics, especially not the history of economics and cronyism. And plenty of them had like subpar kind of status type of misinformation placed into their minds by, I don't know, public schools, lazy journalism, mainstream history shows and, and stuff like that. And so many people falsely believe that regulations exist for the benefit of all. In reality, many of the regulations that exist today were put there by big business, uh, big money actors with incentives, etc. Can you possibly give like an example or touch on that some more? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is this is a very important point. Since uh, history is is how, in many ways, it's how we learn. It's how most people find history more interesting than economics, and most people are taught history. You think of in a public school or a college, etc. And it's in it's in these history classes, or it's in these documentaries, or these articles, you know, books, uh, whatever you you read that people basically get taught that government's good and markets are bad. So you learn that the industrial revolution was bad. You got children working in factories before the federal reserve. You had really severe business cycles before the food and drug administration. Uh, people were poisoning uh, meat products, so on and so forth. And then when you actually look at the historical record and you sort of um, read neglected uh, histories and so on, you say, oh, this actually uh, wasn't the case. And one of my favorite ex examples of this is what you mentioned is that a lot of regulation, in fact, actually benefits large businesses simply because they can deal with the compliance costs. So they will push for regulation because it's going to disproportionately harm their smaller competitors, which will allow the large business to raise prices and restrict production. A great example of this doesn't occur in the uh, the time period I'm looking at, simply because you didn't see those large uh, business concerns yet. Though there were, uh, you know, large businesses um, that, you know, particularly, you know, in in, um, in shipping and so on. But my my favorite example of this is with the meat legislation of the Progressive Era. I talk about this in the Progressive Era book written by Murray Rothbard, which I edited, uh, as well as a paper I'm working on on actually this, this very issue, uh, looking directly at primary sources. The traditional history is that Upton Sinclair uh, did this great expose showing how the meat trust or the beef trust in Chicago was poisoning uh, its workers. This all turned out to be sort of a gross fabrication. But the meat industry, the beef trust actually supported the final legislation because they knew it would disproportionately harm their smaller competitors, requiring them to retool all their facilities and separate machinery. And you got to have all these doctors now looking at everything, letting government agents inspect your plants. A lot of small meatpacking companies went out of business. And so in the decade after the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, uh, product choice went down, prices went up and profits increased for the beef trust. So you see this time and time again. Most recently, of course, there's all of the COVID regulations. Large businesses have been able to handle face masks and social distancing and lockdowns more than small businesses. And of course, Amazon and other e-commerce um, uh, companies have been able to uh, deal with people ordering online a lot more easily than your traditional retail brick and mortar store. Yeah, not to mention the mandates, which closed down a lot of smaller uh, businesses and mom and pop shops. And, you know, all while the 10 richest people are adding more than 400 billion, you know, to their own net worth in 2021. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's still alive and well today. And if anything, it, it might be on overdrive, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, another example that I, I routinely, <laughs> I tried to point out then, it didn't really work. I try and teach this to my students. Um, you know, I'm getting some uh, some, some, uh, some, some years, um, you know, the people, some converting some people, so to speak, uh, or at least, uh, you know, showing them a different perspective is that when you look at the, the paycheck protection program during the, the lockdowns of March and April of 2020, uh, Congress had created this program to provide loans or outright, um, you know, money grants, you know, to just actually outright subsidies to various businesses to deal with, uh, the fact that there are lockdowns, they can't sell things, they can pay their workers, and so on. 
where did most of this money go? Did it go to your average small business? No, it went to, even though it was said it was intended for small and medium businesses, it went largely to uh, doctor's firms, to accountant, uh, you know, accounting companies, uh, to, you know, to, to various partnerships and other wealthy um, um, uh, companies and corporations simply because they had the connections with the banks that were dispersing the money. They had already um, you know, had their relative, you know, they have lawyers and accountants, things you get people who can deal with the paperwork. So they've already suffered that fixed cost. Your average small business totally thrown out of whack by this uh, COVID pandemic was not about that. Just hire a bunch of lawyers to, um, you know, then start filling out paperwork to get money from Bank of America, uh, which got money from Congress. So most of that money just was gobbled up by large businesses because they could handle the compliance costs of the regulation. Smaller companies could not, which is why, as you correctly, as you correctly point out, so many of them went out of business, which is just really unfortunate. Yeah, exactly, man. What, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you think, uh, like, spawned this? I mean, obviously, power corrupts, as you know, Lord Acton stated. But during your research into into the book, did you find any like certain historical event or issue that can be isolated, which acted as a as an impetus for the transformation from like the great constitutional republic to this corrupt system of cronyism? Yeah, the the, the proximate reason, which really kind of sabotaged both the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Jacksonian Democrats, was always land. Really, it was the it was the power of uh, of, of having more land increasing the size of the country that corrupted the reformers with the Jeffersonian Republicans. It was the Louisiana purchase of 1803, which added some 500 million acres to the size of the, uh, the country, right? So really transforming it. And then under uh, the, the Democrats in the 1840s, it was annexing the independent country of Texas, which had recently seceded from Mexico, and then engaging in really a, a war of blatant conquest against Mexico to gobble up California and the Southwest, you know, Utah, Arizona, and so on. So it was always the the issue of land because it's you can these politicians they they were really tormented, and then of course they they, they were tempted by this land because they recognized that with all this land would come greater. Uh, respect on the world stage, it would increase the power and the economy of the country and so on. But in doing so, it would require a large amount of government intervention to prevent the, the newly acquired territories from seceding and so on. So a lot of people, when they think about the United States, they have this preordained or this preconceived conception that the country just had to extend from the east coast to the west coast well that was just it just had to be what america uh you know was going to turn out any other um any other solution would just sort of be inconceivable but a lot of people back then thought that there would be multiple countries in the area now of the continental united states thomas jefferson is one of them he thought the west coast would be its own country something that i kind of wish he was right on <laughs> uh given given current um, attitudes in the West Coast, but it really was all adding more and more land or pre presented with the opportunity of adding more and more land caused the various libertarian reformers, the proponents of the free market and small government to sort of discard their constitutional scruples and to embark on a, a great amount of special privileges and subsidies and land grants and so on. It was manifest destiny, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of people don't realize, and I, I talk about this in my book, the original guy who propounded uh, the, you know, the phrase, who really come up with the definition of, of manifest destiny, he was actually in, initially in favor of gradually acquiring more land through um, homesteaders, so having settlers just basically um, you know, settle uninhabited land or, or land from Mexico and then breaking away, petitioning to be added into the union, having private uh, transportation projects, right? But what happened was then he, he swung over. He became a big uh, interventionist once Texas and the Mexican War presented itself. So, you know, that it, it, you, you see it even with that definition. It's, it, it's truly, it's power corrupts. And um, it was really land that was the, 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 the ultimate catalyst. That makes sense. It's very interesting. Did you, uh, did you ever, like, during the, the, hours and hours and weeks and months i guess that you researched for this book did you find any like single instance that like blew you away like a what the fuck moment like it was just like really shocking in our in in, in our recent history 
Yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. So there's there's a couple of these. Um, one of the the, the 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 most amazing things that I found is that just how many of our ruling elites back in the day were always interested in various land speculation, right? So they would bid, they would they would lobby the government to get, basically give them ownership of large amounts of land, which they can then sell to settlers at high prices and so on. George Washington, a notable land speculator. Uh, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall was a notable land speculator. My favorite sort of little quick example of cronyism that a lot of people don't understand uh, or, or recognize, it's definitely not taught, is the, uh, the reason why Washington, D.C. is where it is. So if, if you know basic history or you, you know history around this time period where you're usually taught is – the capital uh, was put on the Potomac River because the South agreed to have Congress assume all of the state's debts uh, when they, the Constitution was created. So Hamilton wanted to assume the state's debts, Hamilton and the Federalists, uh, the Virginians, Thomas Jefferson, et cetera. They said no. There was this compromise. And it was basically decided that Washington would have the ability to put uh, to choose the location of the capital, which is currently in Philadelphia, somewhere along the Potomac River within this uh, agreed upon box, so to speak. Okay, so crisis averted. Next year, Hamilton pushes for this bank bill. Uh, He pushes to create a central bank. And people are really upset about this. Jefferson says, no, you you shouldn't do this. It's unconstitutional. He's telling Washington, you got to you got to veto the bill. Hamilton says, yes. In Washington, actually, he was leaning towards the veto. He 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 didn't he, he was he, he didn't want the bank. He was suspicious of it. But <laughs> uh, he also wanted to move the capital outside of that box, right? The, the the actual site of the capital outside of the agreed upon box, closer to all of his property in Alexandria. So he basically made a deal with the Federalists. He said, "Look, I'll I won't veto your bank if you amend the Residence Act." So you can put the capital or the, the location of the, the future capital next to all of my property. And that's that's abs- that's actually what happened. Washington basically sold out <laughs> so he could have the capital next to all of his land. And in like an extremely ironic sense, you still see this influence in D.C. because Mount Vernon is still gobbling up an enormous amount of land, his, 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 his estate in D.C. He's got this huge road that's taking up all this space, et cetera. But, yeah, the, Washington, D.C. is located where it is. Because Washington, the man himself, uh, basically wanted to increase the value of his property, and <laughs> his real estate values did go up by about a thousand percent. Wow, that's crazy! President number one started the whole thing. You know, it's just, it was—it's yep. just inexplicably tied to to government. The corruption is tied to the state. I mean, it's just from—it's—it's it's unavoidable. Yeah, little hidden history there for our listeners. So um, switching gears just a little bit here, you know, according to the mainstream, our views as libertarians uh, are called fringe. Some people even call us extremists. Have you had any mainstream economics professors or any academia interested in your book or write any reviews, rebuttals uh, so far, or they mostly just ignored it? Yeah, so I've 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 sent it out. I've got some reviews. So it's there are some reviews coming out in various journals or I've had people write sort of blog posts, et cetera, on this various economists. It does take a little bit more time for your traditional book reviews to come out. But unfortunately, it's 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 been kind of ignored. Really, most mainstream economic historians, they're not going to deal with something like cronyism. They're going to deal with uh, you know, oh, everything was in the public interest, et cetera. And this is a big, uh, unfortunate reality of the academic profession and why it's so corrupt or crony is that it really is a guild. Um, if you don't go to the, the right schools, a.k.a. the Ivy League schools, you won't get those jobs uh, at, you know, state universities and so on. And that means you're, you're sort of marked for death. They will... Uh, you know, they'll, they'll know who you are. They'll ostracize you. They'll say you're fringe, et cetera. And so uh, it, 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 it's, it's kind of like an uphill battle. It, it truly is in many ways a, a, a guild system, the, the modern university. Um, it, the, you know, most state uh, universities obviously get tremendous amounts of money from the government. And it's no surprise that they turn out to be huge proponents of government power. It's a little quid pro quo. You basically give cozy jobs and sinecures to university professors, and they're going to teach their students that the uh, government intervention 
A, B, and C are good for you, right? That's that's the that's the that's the crony partnership, so to speak. Right, and that actually leads me to my next question. As an assistant professor of economics, I'm sure you're critical of mainstream economic professors and classes. Is there any one glaring critique that you have with how mainstream economics are taught compared to the Austrian school? Because I remember there was a, a lecture for the Mises Institute. I think it was Dr. Uh, Timothy Terrell. He said that he couldn't find the word entrepreneur in most mainstream economics textbooks in the index, which seems absolutely crazy to me. It seems like an essential component to understanding economics. I mean, is there any one thing that uh, kind of is a glaring example or critique that you, you could share with us? Yeah, so uh, that, that's a, that's a great question because yeah, I am um, on I am a, a, an Austrian economist, so I, I do all the the, the heterodox uh, Austrian school, Austrian business cycle theory, praxeology, all of that stuff. I'm a big fan of. I've written about it and so on. Um, the big, what, at least in the, the 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 textbooks I've looked at, or some of the textbooks I've taught out, taught taught at, uh, you know, taught from, etc. A, a, a big issue that I always find and this is even in the simple textbooks to the advanced graduate school textbooks, is that your average neoclassical textbook is going to wax and wane about various market failures. They're going to say markets aren't perfect, markets lead to problems. A lot of times I would argue that most of those problems are due to government intervention, but undeniably there are instances, of course, where markets don't work or you know a business produces something that turns out to be unprofitable, right? This isn't a flaw of capitalism, it just says, all right, they'll be out-competed, et cetera. So you look at the index of a textbook, and you're going to see market failure and a whole list of things. There is virtually nothing in the vast majority of textbooks on government failure. <laughs> the, the argument is always that markets aren't perfect, so there's failures, therefore the government can fix them, right? Just assuming that the government has the omniscience or it has the supposed, you know, the, the best experts or whatever – to then decide the, the the appropriate fix, and it's it's this subtle um, uh, this subtle argument that the government is just this perfect Mister Fix It that can get everything done that I just find so incorrect or infuriating, and it, it, it's 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 teaching students um, a very flawed understanding of how the world works, and particularly how governments work, because um, there are plenty of government failures. Sure. And there's a lot of parallels to today and what we're seeing with COVID. You know, there's this belief that government's just going to fix it. And the next mandate that they tell us, you know, that's going to be the solution or wearing the three masks or, you know, three jabs, four jabs even. So, yeah, that's yeah, really it, interesting. Yeah. I sometimes joke. I think there's going to be more jabs than there are Fast and Furious movies. Um, but, <laughs> you, you know, like I, then again, it, it could they're churning out Fast and Furious movies, but they're also churning out you know, booster shots. So, you know, it's, it's literally an arms race at this point. Um, uh, yeah. An additional thing it relates directly to COVID and even just stuff of, of, of today's, you know, today's environment, because especially as we enter this year, uh, inflation is, is a big problem, right? Inflation's at 7%. Uh, it, it's somehow some seemingly come out of nowhere. Real wages are down. Your average person's wage went down by about two and a half percent last year because of inflation, all, all of these issues. It reminds me that whenever I read History of Thoughts written by Mises or Rothbard, they would always talk about like the banking and currency schools or the bullionists and the anti-bullionists and saying like back in the Napoleonic Wars, what was causing inflation? You had some people saying it's the increase in the money supply. Other people were saying, no, it was crop shortages and speculation on the foreign exchange market and you know other things. And that, that we're pretty much living that again where it's most economists now – um, they, they won't even you read an article on inflation. It's like the money supply doesn't even exist. Right. Or they just assume that the Federal Reserve will be able to practice contractionary monetary policy and get this amazing soft landing and then all sorts of stuff. It's just this continual sort of um, belief in the supremacy of the government. And it really just comes out down to be it's, it's just apologies. It's, it, that, that's all it is. It's the old alliance of throne and altar. You get the court intellectuals allying with the government to say everything the government's doing is great and that's why you need to support the government. It's it's history doesn't repeat itself but it absolutely does rhyme. Yeah, and that's probably why we see so many mainstream articles uh, basically simping, you know, for the Federal Reserve, simping for all the all the um, inflation, you know, I, I'm trying to find the screenshot now, but I just had one 
come across my radar recently. It's like, yeah, inflation's not that big of a deal, you know, just kind of downplaying everything. And meanwhile, our savings are being, you know, devalued. And, uh, you know, that minimum wage that just raised is, is even more insignificant now. So, um, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, just switching gears again here, I, I know your focus has been more uh, in the past, but switching gears to, to the present, for our listeners who might not be anarchists yet, is there any foreseeable path you could see through legislation to fix this massive problem of cronyism? Do we just need to vote harder or is there just no way to really put the genie back in the bottle? So that's, that's a great question. Um, my answer is that <laughs> uh, if, if the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians could not reform Washington, D.C., we can't reform Washington, D.C., right? When you had so much more of the libertarian uh, or free market spirit among Americans and among various politicians and elites, and they st- still couldn't get the job done, I mean, maybe third time's the charm. But basically my argument or, or is, is that, well, you, you can't reform Washington, D.C. You can only try and sort of break away from it. So I think that one of the, the, the promising trends that we've seen over the past couple years um, before COVID and even you know, after COVID is more stuff on the state level or states' rights decentralization. There's been more movements for secession. You had Catalonia. You had Kurdistan. Uh, you even had Brexit, et cetera. I think these issues are very good at illustrating um, the coercive nature of government to your average person because it's very easy to see that, hey, government's not this big, uh, you know, this big friendly neighbor. Government's not the social club uh, because they're not letting you leave. They're not letting people leave. They're employing violence, uh, forcing people to adhere to mandates or vaccine requirements, et cetera. And this is causing a lot of people to at least just support more decentralization. And I think that's really the only way of getting stuff done. So it's through various forms of explicit or implicit nullification and secession that will really be our best hope at reducing sort of cronyism. We've seen this cronyism is certainly, you know, alive in the, in the, you know, with the drug war and et cetera. But at least on the state level, you've seen uh, various forms of marijuana legalization, right? That's sort of an implicit nullification of the federal government's laws. You've seen uh, Florida, which a state I live in, as well as other uh, states kind of uh, resist uh, Congress's uh, various requirements and so on. That's a form of nullification. That's really the only way we'll be able to fight the system. It won't be through just sort of electing more people to go to Washington. Having politicians run for office on the federal level is great. It's a great way of getting messages out. But need to focus uh, less on trying to reform Washington and focus more on trying to get more people out of Washington, so to speak. Dr. Newman, you're making too much sense. You're starting to sound like a dangerous extremist. You're, you're a threat to our Thanks. democracy. Yeah. But um, I know we're, we have to wrap it up here. Our, our time is limited, and we very much appreciate your time. Um, so one last question. You said at a Mises event, and this was kind of your punchline, uh, wrapping up your speech at the Mises event. You said, eternal research is the price of liberty. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So um Instead of eternal vigilance being the price of liberty, um, an old quote uh, attributed to Thomas Jefferson, though he, he apparently he, he didn't say it, um, the ideas move people. So your average person isn't going to have enough time to do research or maybe to read all these books and et cetera to learn about various issues. They need intellectuals to tell them of various levels, right? Uh, whether it's a professor or it's a doctor or it's a pastor at a church. Um, or so on, you know, that's how most people get uh, information, right? So you need to, and if you want your ideas to survive, you have to be willing to invest in people who are going to focus on uh, defending those ideas, to understanding those ideas, to articulating those ideas, and so on. And really, for your average uh, libertarian, there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of showing benefits of the, the free market, doing research that's not just going to convince sort of the faithful, so to speak, but new people to sort of recognize that the current system isn't working and so on. And you can only get that through, uh, I guess, blood, sweat and tears, so, you know, reading books, 
uh, writing papers and so on, but making sure that you know this, this abstract research uh, that is is continually being developed is actually being articulated to the average person in some filtered down way. I often find libertarians they either focus too much on just abstract research and talking to themselves, so you get a bunch of academics or libertarian academics. They're you know they're just kind of in their own world, or you get people who are too too much policy focused or current events focused where they're just focusing on, you know, the, 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 the what's happening day by day. And they're not really trying to build sort of a long term strategy or development of ideas. So if you want the free market to succeed, if you want, you know, Austrian economics, libertarianism to flourish, et cetera, you have to be willing to do the research and to be able to advance the ideas that are really kind of uh, form the foundation uh, for those uh, sciences. Brilliant answer. Yeah, we certainly need more thought leaders. Uh, social media gives us incentive to kind of keep our finger on the pulse of current news and information. But as Dr. Newman mentioned, that's it's absolutely critical to understand the history, uh, understand the philosophy, and how to apply it to today's world that we're living in. So we're at the end of our podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to consider donating or subscribing to the Free Thought Project. You could do that by going to the top of our website. Uh, we also have a link there for our newsletter. Uh, sign up for that for daily emails. Check out Legal Shield while you're there. Follow us on social media. We're on, I think, 15 or 16 different social media platforms at this point. And also, please remember to review and rate this podcast. Dr. Newman, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Um, just the, I, I'm on social media as well. You can follow me at, at Dr. Patrick Newman, and I'll be speaking at a Mises Institute event in Tampa, Florida in February. I'll be talking about, uh, you know, can Florida survive the inflationary bubble? So if anyone's in the area and interested in that, uh, I'd be happy to meet you then. But thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, check out Dr. Newman's new book, or you can wait till next year. I think I saw that there's an audible version coming out. And also check out his uh, Liberty versus Power podcast with Tho Bishop. So yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Newman, for joining us today. You're doing the good work because without understanding the history, we really can't understand how we got here into this mess, nor can we understand how to change it. So yeah, we very much appreciate your time and keep up the great work. Well, thanks for having me on. 